you have your Bibles with you and want to follow along, why don't you start turning over to John chapter 9. And as we dive into this chapter, and let me just say thanks to Jason and Winston. They did a fantastic job uh, launching us back into John here over the past couple of weeks. And uh, as we dive back into this, let me just say sometimes life feels a little random, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes it's just things just hit you out of the blue. Life feels random. Life regularly reminds us that we're not in control. Anybody experienced that a little in the last couple of years? Sometimes, actually, life feels a little cruel. And because of that, I think we often, um, it's so easy for us to just kind of go into survival mode in life, put our heads down, um, quit living with a hope and an expectation and a sense of purpose in life. And in today's passage, we're going to see someone that Jesus is going to encounter that's in this exact place and the transformation that Jesus brings to his life and the transformation that Jesus can bring to your life and to my life. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive right in. We're going to start in John chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus is leaving the Temple Mount um, after a crazy argument with the Pharisees. You can go back uh, and watch last week's message online if you missed it. As he leaves the Temple Mount, it says this, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so a couple of things I noticed right off the bat is it, it just says as Jesus went along. So he is heading out. He's on his way somewhere. It's this seemingly random event, but it's not random. And as we're going to see in a minute, God has orchestrated this moment. This is going to be the moment where this guy's life is radically transformed. And see, in this day and age, in the first century, blindness was a much more common condition than it is today. And it was, um, so, so there were no seeing eye dogs, there was no braille, there were no schools for the blind. This, to, to be blind in the first century meant that you were a beggar means you had no hope or prospect of, of marriage. It means someone would lead you out to the place where you would beg each and every day in order that hopefully people would have kindness and compassion for you so that you could at least have enough food to, to provide for your needs. It's a very tragic situation in, in the first century. And it was very common for all kinds of different reasons and hygiene and all kinds of different things. And I want to know, and I'm not sure from the text, it's not clear, but how did they know he was born blind? Because it sure sounds like um, they're walking down the road coming out of the Temple Mount, and here's this dude sitting over here begging, and um, they just like, they know he was born blind. Well, they're in Jerusalem. This isn't like the place where Jesus grew up, or the disciples even. So maybe somebody told them along the way, hey, or, I, or maybe it, Jesus just knew because he's Jesus, right? He does this. So Jesus, maybe Jesus tells him, hey, uh, that dude was born blind because Jesus knows what he's going to do. So he's like, hey, check that out. That dude was born blind. And it says the disciples asked, um, whoa, who sinned? See, as we ended last week, um, as Jesus points out this guy, we ended last week. You remember what Jesus said. At the very end of chapter 8, it's this really profound statement. It sort of caps off this whole, like, really big argument between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And, and Jesus exposes their pride and their sinfulness. 
and their murderous hearts. And at the very end of that, Jesus makes this powerful statement. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's one of the the seven ego ami statements, that I am statements, that bring us back to Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and says, I am that I am. What What do you know what you want to call me? I am that I am. And so Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And it says they knew exactly what he was insinuating here, and they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him, and in the midst of that, Jesus exits, and this is where we, we pick up today. And see, here's what I think about this blind guy right here. I think Jesus points him out because Jesus was there when he was born. He was born blind. How does Jesus know? Because Jesus was there when he was born. The presence of God was there in that place. He, Jesus was there at his birth. Jesus saw the heartache. He saw the tears running down his mother's face as this baby was born, and she recognizes, and the realization comes to mom and dad of what this means for this life. They didn't have any warning. They didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't have all this stuff, right? It just sinks in in a moment as this baby is born, and they realize he's he's never going to see. He's born blind from birth. And just that heartache and the the hope and all the hopes and dreams they had for that little child as they talked about names and argued about names and finally decided on a name. If it's a boy, we're going to name him this. If it's a girl. And all of a sudden, their hopes and dreams for that child are gone in an instant. (laughs) And Jesus was there. And so I think as Jesus walks by... This man sitting there on the edge of the road, Jesus looks over at him. And I think the Holy Spirit whispers in Jesus' ear, because we know Jesus, you know, heard and responded to the Holy Spirit like no one, no human that's ever walked the planet, right? And says, hey, remember that dude? And the father's like, oh, I've been waiting for this day for a long time. See, the question is, in our life, in our day-to-day life, like this was a moment ordained by God that seemingly was so random. As Jesus went on his way, he just happens to pick out, hey, see that dude over there? He's born, born blind. His disciples are like, how did this happen, right? But this was a moment where God was moving. And the question for us is, do you have any, expect- do you have any expectancy in your heart that God is actually alive and wants to move in the day in and day out of your life? He actually wants to do things through you and in you, and God is active in a life. I think it's so easy for us to go through days, to go sometimes through weeks, without ever really having the conscious realization that, God, you are in this moment with me right now, and you have moments ordained for me in this day where you want to move, and you want to show up, and you want to do things in powerful ways. And this is exactly where they find themselves. Are you paying attention? Is I think at the heart of this is at the very beginning of this. Are you in tune? Disciples are clueless, as usual. And Jesus knows this, the Father is at work. Remember, Jesus says, I do what I see the Father doing. The Father is at work, and the Father taps on the shoulder. The Father says, hey, this is what we're doing. We're going we're to go meet up with this guy. 
Are you paying attention when the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear? Are you paying attention to things that are a little bit off, that seem like a random weird coincidence, but it's actually God at work? I call these things um, things that make you go, hmm, when it comes to God, right? Hmm, that's a little strange, but it's God actually at work behind the scenes. Are you, are you paying any attention? Are you aware in the, in, in the, in the moment? I can tell you, uh, years ago before we planted the church, um, a seemingly random moment when I pulled into this parking lot after praying and praying about God, or, you know, these office units over here, you could hold this worse and see this sign that says event center. Random. But I, I, because I had been leaning into what God had and praying, I think, you know, I was paying attention when he said, hey, here's your space, this little event center over here, go for it. And little did I know that day would literally change the trajectory of my life. That random moment when I pulled in to buy some bacon for breakfast, because bacon is yummy. Um, right, dads? That's why we have it for you. We, we know you. <laughs> and as they say, the rest is history, right? And so... This guy doesn't know. It's a random day. He just got up to go out and beg, and somebody led him to his corner, the same as he's been doing every day for we don't know how many years. But this was the day that God had ordained to meet him where he was. Now, you see, being blind in this culture, it's worse than just a tragic situation. In the Jewish culture, um, you can tell by the disciples' question, uh, the bigger problem even than the tragedy is they thought that it was your fault. Notice the disciples, they're like, who sinned? The parents or the, or the kid? Somebody sinned. Whose fault is this? And rabbinic Judaism around the first century in the, the tradition of the elders, they believed that actually, based on some random obscure scriptures, that you could actually sin in the womb. And so they're like, man, this guy did something really bad in there, Right? Or his parents sinned. There was something his parents did that was really bad. And because of that, he was born blind. And so all your life, you carry the stigma that either you did something to deserve this or you were born into sin because your parents did something to deserve this. It was somebody's fault, the disciples say. Whose fault was it? Whose fault? Hey. This kid's got some, some wisdom there, right? You're just like, it was my fault. Uh, it was me. Men, if you can learn, it's Father's Day, I'll give you some advice. You know, if you could just do that in the home, you'd, life will go much better for you. It's my fault. But see, uh, there's a huge population of the world that actually lives like this today. That their fundamental underlying worldview about the life is like this. In fact, there's about 1.7 billion people on the subcontinent of Asia and India and in certain places around there that hold some version of this called karma. And then there's a modern version. I'll talk about that in a second. That a whole bunch of people right around you and your places of work hold as well. You know, Hindus, in the Hindu culture, some Hindus believe that you have to actually go through 6,800,000 reincarnations just to balance out a person's wrongs and somehow come to a place of enlightenment or liberation. That's a lot of lives that you got to come back and keep trying, right? And it's this idea that, that you do good things, good things come back to you. You do bad things, bad things come back to you. Karma. 
And I'm just saying, a lot of Christians even have this sort of framework when it comes to their relationship with God, that if I can just do good enough, God is going to come back and do this for me. And it's a transactional relationship. Or in our culture, probably some of your coworkers, some of your friends, some of the people you go to school work or school with have this kind of idea of the universe, right? And it just looks a little different. Karma and the universe. I give the universe good things. The universe gives me good things back. But that's a really hard way to live because it puts all the pressure on you. And like we started out saying, life is random and sometimes life can feel so cruel. And it's so hard to understand these, these things that happen in life sometimes, isn't it? And so many people, they have this kind of um, karma idea about life and the afterlife. And sort of, if I can just do good enough and tip the scales in my favor, that then... I'll, I'll get there. You know, whatever the afterlife looks like, whatever heaven's like, I'll, I'll get in. How do you know? I think I've, I've been pretty good. I dare you ask 10 people. You're probably going to get that answer about six or seven times. How do you know you're going to go to heaven? I've been pretty good compared to who? Well, let's see, Hitler. Um, but see, the question nobody really likes to ask is how good is good enough? And this, see, see, before we get to the good news of the gospel and the scripture, you get to the bad news that the standard is perfection, not just good enough. That all, Paul puts it this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's worse than that, actually, that as human race, as part of the human race, we are rebels that are actually in our souls warring against God apart from Jesus. We're separated by, from a perfect God by sin. And so you, you can be pretty good, but if a passing grade is 100, you know, my, my grade, you're probably better than me. Like, your grade might be 90. You, you're you know, you, going to get an A. I'm like, C's get degrees, you know? Hey, that's not the way it works. And see, this is the hard part about karma, right? Versus grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is the good news of the gospel. Grace is that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he initiated a relationship first. What I love about this, the dude's blind. He's sitting there begging and Jesus spots him and goes after him. And that's the heart of the gospel, that he loved you first. He moved in your direction first. While you were dead in your sins and trespasses, he loved you. He cared for you. And because of that, um, in Ephesians 2, um, Paul says, grace, salvation is a free gift of God, lest anyone should boast. You can't boast. I don't care. You've been a Christian all your life. You know, you've served, you've given, you've done it all. There's no boasting in that because it's a free gift. Salvation's a free gift. So the drug addict that just comes in and gives his life to Jesus stands at an equal place at the foot of the cross as you do. That's the beauty of the gospel. But it's very hard for us because we are steeped in this kind of karma thinking. You do good things, good things happen. But come on, that's not the way the universe works. I've done some funerals for really good people. 
See, life presents us with a problem in suffering. In fact, many skeptics, many atheists, this is one of the primary reasons they give for actually not following God. Is this idea that if there is a if there is an all-powerful God, why is there suffering in this world? Or if there's an all-loving God, how can there be suffering in this world? Because we all acknowledge suffering. And karma says, well, you just got to go around six million times, then it'll make sense. Do better next time. You're a cockroach, squash. At least that was a quick one of your six million rotations. Whew. But the secularist is like, no, it's just all random. It's random. It's meaningless. Suffering is meaningless. It's, it's just part of nature. I mean, seriously, you look at the universe, you think the universe is good? You know, there's a logical um, fallacy to this idea that if, um, that if God is all-powerful, how can there be suffering? Or if he's all-good, how can there be suffering in this world? Because what it assumes is you and I and our finite brains, how many of you really understand? I mean, you've heard, you know, all these quintillion, like, miles, light years that the universe is wide. How many of you kind of have your mind wrapped around that a little bit? No. You can't even wrap your mind around the size of the universe. Not to mention the... In, the uh, I'm having a hard time with words. Words are hard sometimes, right? I watched this one YouTube guitar player, and he has this cute thing. Every time he messes up, he's like, words are hard. I feel like that many weeks. Especially if it's been a couple of weeks since I've taught. I'm like, it always takes me a little while. Um, so anyway... Um, but you can't even wrap your mind around like the intricacy of the operation of even one of the cells in your body. It's like, blows your mind. And there's a God that created all of that. Or you can take a real leap of faith and, and think that that all came by chance, natural processes. I think that's a much bigger leap of faith. The God that created all that, is it possible that your finite brain may not be able to understand that God has a purpose and allowing suffering in this world. That there is a purpose that an all-powerful, loving God has. A God who's big enough to create the universe that's beyond anything we can comprehend. Is it possible that you, little human being, might allow that this, this God who's so much bigger than you has purposes that you cannot understand? And then besides that, the problem when it comes to suffering is um, a lot of times people that you love are the cause of suffering. Have you noticed that? Because there ain't no perfect people in this world. And so it's not all, I mean, we can all kind of gang up on like Hitler and Mussolini and, you know, some of these guys, Stalin. A lot of times people you love do things that really hurt people and cause pain. And see, what we like to try to do is pick and choose what source of suffering we'd like to take out of the mix. See, when, when Peter in First uh, Peter is talking about judgment and talking about suffering and, and talking about uh, the judgment of God, he says, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. You think God is weak or God's not involved because he, you know, people are getting away with bad stuff and the judgment hasn't come. No, it's his mercy. His patience, because the, the longer he waits to come back, the longer he waits to judge, it's more people 
that are saved, that come into his family. So, um, I, I love this. Uh, grace is so, so foreign to our mind. I remember sharing um, a story with my grandfather who we never quite knew if he was saved um, when he was on his deathbed. And uh, I shared the story of the thief on the cross who called out for mercy. He's like, all my life I've done awful things. But Lord, remember me. He didn't earn it. He didn't have a chance to go and repent and change his ways and all that. He just said, Lord, remember me. And Jesus will say, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that was the story I, I, I uh, prayed, told my grandpa he prayed and received Jesus about a week before he died. It's so counterintuitive. Grace is so opposite from what we feel so many times. But that's the cross. That's the beauty of the cross. The Archbishop of Canterbury, here's William Temple, here's what he said. People say, there cannot be a God of love because if there was, and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. The church points to the cross and says it did break. People say, it's God who made the world, and it's he who should bear the load. The church points to the cross and says, he did bear it. Grace. Un unmerited favor. So on this day, this man's life would be changed. So Jesus answers, because his disciples are like, how did this happen? Who sinned? Parents, kid. It's somebody's fault. Whose fault was it? And Jesus says this in verse 3, and this will blow your mind a little. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am, at, I am the light of the world. Now, there's two possibilities here in this little phrase. And I got to go a little nerdy on you for a minute, Greek nerdy, um, because this is actually really important when it comes to the scripture. You realize the Bible wasn't written in English, right? I hate to break it to you. King James um, didn't originally pen it, Okay. Uh, it was all translated from the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, right? It was all translated from the different languages that we have. And so when the translator comes to things, if you've ever gone to a different um, country, you know there's things that are lost in translation. I used to live in Mexico, and I'd have friends that would, and they always called me a fresa, which meant a strawberry. I'm like, I don't get it. I still don't get it. I'm like, but they just laugh at me, and I... I and there's things that are lost in translation that if you, unless you understand the context and the full like language, um, you don't really get. And so uh, this is actually one of those things. And so when trans, now we have amazing translations of the Bible. You know, there's lots of great translations of the Bible. We happen to teach out of this one, the NIV, most frequently here. Um, it's not my favorite, but it's one of the more understandable in English versions. Um, and so... Because of that, translators sometimes have to make judgment calls when, when the Greek is a little more ambiguous and can mean a couple different things. And so it's very easy to look at the scripture and go, so, oh, so what's happening here is God made this kid blind before he was born and let him suffer for 20 or 30 years so that Jesus could come and heal him. Now, an infinite God, the sovereignty of God, if that is within his will, 
If you go to the end of the story, I don't think this guy would have gone back and changed the story. Because he meets Jesus and isn't just healed physically. He is healed spiritually and eternally and has life. But here's another way of interpreting this that I think is probably um, very likely a superior way, actually, to, than what is here. Um, and I'll flip to the next slide. This is, if you ever want to, you can go to Bible Hub. They have a cool interlinear version. And um, if you actually go line up the Greek, it says this, answered Jesus, neither this man sinned. Whenever I read the Greek, I can't help but thinking of Yoda because it's always in the, like, I don't, can't do Yoda either, so I won't try. Um, my kid does a good Yoda impression, but he's 12, so... Um, Answered Jesus, neither this man sinned nor the parents of him, but that should be displayed, the works of God in him. Us, it behooves to work the works of God, of the one having sent me while it is day. Okay? And so let me make that a little more understandable. Here's perhaps a better way, I think a better way you could read this translation, and that's this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, right? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. And the implication of this is, hey, stop trying to place blame and figure out all the deep philosophical underpinnings of all this because you finite little human being can't really understand the, the magnitude of how God allows free will and free choice and allows some suffering and all of this and yet works out history to, the, to his great purposes. You can't comprehend that. Instead, do the things he's calling to you to do right now. Jesus is like, it's daytime. I'm here. We're working. The author of Hebrews writes, while it's still today, do what he's calling while it's today. Get it done. Like, let's, we, we, can, we can argue of the philosophy later. There's this dude sitting here in front of you that needs the touch of God right now. Focus on that. Let's get the work done that I'm sent here to do. And I love this because in, in God, in the midst of the tragedy and pain of the circumstance, here's how I think it went down. I think at his birth, did God say, blind, I don't think so. I think God saw this, and God said, oh, just wait. Just wait. <laughs> oh, buddy, I know it's hard. Just wait, though. And when it comes to the problem of pain and suffering in this world, so many there's so many things that honestly... Um, we come around and we say, well, God, I don't understand why you allow this. I have a friend, uh, Jim Hale. He's a pastor here in town, author. He was a guide on Denali. Powerful ways that God stepped into his life in dramatic ways and saved his life. Powerful ways God moved. He was on the river, allowed him to rescue some kid. And then yet, I read in the news this, this week, a young woman died in the river. Tragedy. And that is the hard part about life is that there's a randomness. And yet in the midst of that, it's like what Jesus is saying is in the midst of that, the power of God is here and can reach people right where they are. And no, you are never going to be able to explain it all and understand why it all happens. But God is with you. He is all powerful and he can move in this moment, in this situation. And so he says, let's get, now is the time. 
And you remember other places in John, he, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And I love that because what, what the Father is doing, this isn't just a random event. This is the heart of God, our Heavenly Father. And see, where karma is like this universe and this mystical force, and you sort of get back credit what you put in, and you never quite know where you stand. Jesus comes along and tells us there is a loving Heavenly Father that knows your name, that cares for you. And he invites us to, to pray and say, our Father in heaven. See, it's a relationship into family that God is inviting you into. That's where you're at in this. He's inviting you into relationship. Not karma, a loving heavenly father. Not the universe, a, a father who knows your name. Not your father. Your father wasn't perfect. Some of you had great fathers. On Father's Day, some this day is hard for you. A perfect, loving, loving Heavenly Father, like the song, perfect in all your ways. A good, good Father that loves you, that cares for you, that loves you enough that he was willing to sacrifice everything for you. That you, simply by receiving the unmerited gift that he's giving you of salvation, by receiving, by placing your faith and trust fully in the work of Jesus as he died and rose again, that you can have salvation and you can have life. That heavenly father. That heavenly father. And on this day, Jesus pauses to see what the father is doing. And the father says, oh, this is the day I was waiting for as I watched and hurt for this young mom and father crying over their son. This is the day. And man, sometimes we get to look back in this life and see these moments where God steps in and moves powerfully and, and does a miracle and changes the course of somebody's life and history. And, and you look back five or 10 years and you go, oh, that's why God allowed that in my life. Most of us, Honestly, we don't get that experience in this life. There are questions you will die with, and that's part of being human. But in this moment, I think the heart of God was saying, this is the day I've been waiting for. Do you pause and observe what, what the Father's doing in your life? Because he's doing stuff all the time. He's, his heart is for people that are hurting and in pain. He stopped to this most like pitied, destitute person in this culture. And he pauses. Do you pause to see what the Father is doing in your life? I heard this amazing story um, from, from a guy, he, uh, as I was studying, he, he has a friend. This guy is an uh, Indian evangelist and pastor in the Toronto area. And he's telling the story about one of his friends. And his friend's mom was uh, in a marriage. Their marriage was absolutely falling apart. The kids were off the rails. And um, she didn't know Jesus at all, but she considered herself spiritual. And so she picks up the phone to uh, call an astrologist. And so she picks it up, dials, because she wants to, like, talk about her kids that are going off the rails and her marriage that's falling apart and hopefully get some hope for her future. <laughs> And she calls this astrologist, and the number had been changed and rewired to a Jesus follower. Now, pay attention here, um, because what you and I 
honestly would likely do would just be, oh, sorry, I think you have the wrong number and hang up. But on this day, this woman paid attention to what the father was doing. And this lady asked her, hey, um, are you the astrologer? And she's like, no, I'm not the astrologer, but I know someone who knows your future and holds your future in his hands. And she's like, oh, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. And so she begins to strike up a conversation with this lady. She invites this lady over to her house for coffee and builds a relationship with this lady, invites her to church. This lady accepts Jesus. And, and after that, um, her kids accept Jesus, and then they become like evangelists to all their extended family. They accept Jesus. And then one of her sons, this guy's friend, um, becomes an evangelist and launches um, a campus ministry in Toronto that reaches countless lives of young people at universities. That's the power of God. That's the power of the God we serve. But you know what? God works through people paying attention to what the Father's doing and saying yes to listening to the Holy Spirit instead of just going, well, this is funny and awkward and weird. This will be a good story. No, like God, oh, wow, God, you're doing something here. And if you're too focused on the little itty-bitty moment of our life here and now today, instead of the grand scope of eternity and what God's doing, you will miss those moments. And God wants to use you so that other people will have that story. He wants to use you. Are you paying attention? Like, do you just ignore it? See, I mean, when God says, hey, I want you to pray for so-and-so, that feels so awkward. Yes, yes, it does. But awkward is often when God moves. And off, I've checked, awkward never kills you. When God says, hey, I re send so-and-so a text. You're like, but they did this. And I'm still angry about it. Check in. Rebuild the relationship. When the Holy Spirit says, hey, actually pay attention. See, how do you see people in your life? How do you see people? Do you see people as people that the Father's heart is reaching out to? Do you love them, care for them? There's lots of people in life you just, you don't even know their name. I, I bet some of your neighbors, you don't know their name. You nod, you wave. You don't know their name. So, some of you, um, it, it may be somebody, you know, okay, you would feel awkward not to know their name, but it's that Starbucks, you know, you see them at Starbucks every day, it's your barista, it's that person in the IT department down the hall, and you're always at the water cooler, and there's always small talk. And it's always the weather, it's the base, it's, you know, the football game, or whatever, but it never goes anywhere deeper. The question is, are you paying attention? Do you care enough to engage at a deeper level? To actually pay attention when someone clearly, when fine, how are you doing? Oh, fine, isn't fine. And to ask the follow-up question, how are you, what's going on? I can see that's not right. And then taking time to care about someone and get into their life and then have those awkward moments of, hey, I know this is what Jesus did in my life. See, that's paying attention. That's being responsive. That's paying attention to what the Father's doing. To pray for someone. And maybe you'll see God work a miracle, like in a powerful way. And maybe you'll see a change. Or maybe you'll just plant a seed, and you'll never know the outcome. Two guys shared Jesus with my dad when he was in college. He said, no thanks. Closed the door. They walked away. 
he got down on his knees and accepted Jesus and has led an international ministry for 40 years now. And I don't know if those guys will ever have known. So, verse 6, after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, in the culture of the time, they viewed saliva as had medicinal purposes. So this isn't as weird as it sounds. Jesus does this a couple times, actually. So I was going to name the message Jesus Spit, because this is some amazing spit. Go, he told him, watch in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the scent one tells him to go wash in the pool named scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, there's two things here. You, you recognize, like, so we don't necessarily see that the man had faith for healing, but what he did was he had obedience. He did what God told him to do. And he could have gone, Siloam, I'm blind, and that's all the way over here. Somebody got a little water bottle. Here, hand me your Fiji water. I need some Fiji water for this. But he obeyed the word of Jesus, and it radically transformed his life. There's a bigger thing going on, though, than just the physical healing. The pool of Siloam, it's where a few, well, it was in May, we talked about this. The Feast of Tabernacles, the water ceremony, the light ceremony. Jesus said, I am the living water. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There's a bigger thing going on here as Jesus tells him, hey, go wash in the very pool. They draw that water out of where they think they're going to find life. And the man has been blind his whole life. And in the New Testament, Physical blindness is related to spiritual blindness. That's why it says there's so, many, so much of a theme in John about light and darkness, Jesus being the light of the world. He, in fact, in the Old Testament, we never see this miracle, but this is one of Jesus' favorite miracles, healing people that are blind. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I am here so that people who are both physically blind and spiritually blind will see the light, and the truth. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Now, after this, all chaos breaks out. This dude goes home, and his parents, like, he can see. This guy, this wasn't like one of those healings where you're like, yeah, I think my elbow feels a little better. Hey, I mean, hey, pray for your elbow, right? God heals elbows. But this isn't that. This is like no eyes or eyes glazed, like born blind can see. Dramatic. And everybody goes crazy. It says his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging us, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Everybody's going crazy. Some claim that it was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I, I don't know why, but this reminds me of Monty Python that one sees, like, bring out your dead. He's like, I'm not dead yet. He's like, I am the man. It's me. It's me. And there's chaos and wonder that breaks out because the power of God showed up in such a radical way in their situation. And I don't know about you, but I want to see that. I want to see that. 
I want to have more faith to, to pay attention to what God's doing and actually have the guts to step up and pray sometimes when it feels awkward. Or have the guts to open my mouth and have that conversation with someone more often than I do. And see God step in and move in their circumstance. Jesus says, we must work. Like, do the work of God while it's day. Look for what God's doing. Do you want to see that in your life? You know, the God you serve, I'm going to ask Winston to come up. We're going to close in a song. Paul puts it this way. Our God, he says, now to him who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. God, your God has the power to move in your circumstance, in the circumstance of those in your lives. We don't walk through this, this life with the testimony of, oh, just, you know, believe God so someday you could go to heaven. That's wonderful. That's amazing. We walk through this life with the testimony of our God is alive. And he can transform your life. He can move in your situation. He can free you from the thing that you're in bondage to. He can give you a new course and a new path. He can heal you physically, but even more than that, he can heal you eternally. He can give you life and freedom. See, resurrection is the ultimate hope. Which is why Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it about eternity. That you, if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, will spend eternity with your heavenly father. And C.S. Lewis, no like boring vision of like angels with harps floating on clouds. Lewis says it's like eternity is going to be like a book where it never ends and every chapter just keeps getting better and better and better. Or for you non-readers, like a Netflix season. <laughs> Except way better. The most, imagine, the, the most amazing thing you can wrap your mind around. Because of that, we don't lose heart when we experience things in this life that we cannot explain. When things don't go our way, when God answers not yet, or when God says no, or when God even says, like he said to Paul, um, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to give you the grace to walk through that. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, on, what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And see, the issue with suffering, when you really face hard things in your life, the ultimate um, answer is to pull back. You just need a bigger time frame. And our time frame is eternity with the Father. Paul says, a light and momentary troubles, and he went through things that you and I couldn't even imagine. See, I love that more than the dramatic manifestation of healing in the physical that this guy experiences, um, what I want to see for people 
in our community, all over our community, through you, as God empowers you to reach those around you, as you say yes, as you step forward in courage, here's what I want to see. Later, Jesus comes back. He finds the dude and has a conversation with him about who he is. And this is what the man says. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And on that day, the man received not just his sight. He received eternity. Life. We serve a powerful God. Would you stand up? You know, as we close here, I just want to give an opportunity. Um, Some of you, you really need to see God move in an area in your life. You've got something you're carrying that's really heavy. And I just want to pray over you. And so if that's you, I'm just going to invite you. Why don't you put your hand right up now and keep it up for a second. There's some of you in this room. I know there's more than that. Yeah. And then church, we are the church, um, not just pastors. And so if you're standing next to somebody um, that has their hand up right now, if you please put your hand back up. Um, Just put a hand on their shoulder and, uh, and just pray. As I pray, why don't you pray along? Father God, I just lift up each one of these um, children of yours here in this room. Lord, I ask whatever that circumstances they're facing, Lord, the heavy burden they're carrying, Lord, we believe you are the God who works exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. So, Lord, we ask your power to move right now. Lord, I pray that some would experience healing immediately. In this moment, Lord, some maybe that comes down the road through doctors or medicine or, or gradually, Lord, um, for some that you would just speak grace over them. They would feel your presence in a way that they haven't felt in the midst of what they're going through right now. They would, they would know that you are with them. Father, I pray that you would just move. And for, Lord, for anyone in this room that has not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus, would you draw them to yourself? Let them take that step and follow you. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.